Let me invite you, let's take our Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're going to be uh, in verse number 1. We're continuing our study through this book. And uh, we uh, ended at the end of chapter 2 last time we were in here. And so we're picking up in chapter 3. And we're going to read verse 1 down through verse number 8. And we're looking really at uh, a poem that Solomon brings to our attention. And it's uh, really about a time for everything. And so it's really a summary of things that happen in life. And so I hope we can glean some things from this. There's several references of Scripture I'll bring to your attention that's just to kind of bring out what Solomon is saying. Uh, but there's a central undergirding thread here and point that we, we need to see, and it will flow into the text next week. Uh, but I'll, I'll kind of briefly mention and go over that too. But verse number 1 of Ecclesiastes 3 says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. You know, we read through this text and there's several of these things that we might immediately understand what he's saying and then there's some that we might question a little bit. What's what Solomon really referencing here. Uh, but the text before us is one that is quite well known. It's even known in the secular world. You'll hear it referenced in various ways. A few different uh, phrases through this passage are often quoted and referenced. Um, go beyond it to verse 11. How many of us have ever heard that uh, he has made everything beautiful in its time? Uh, even people around us kind of have that idea. They've heard that saying, even though they probably don't know exactly what it means, but they've heard that, right? And then we see verse 1 is a very common, common uh, phrase that's mentioned even in our world. Every, to everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. That, uh, that particular phrase in this passage, it was made somewhat popular by a, a band called The Birds. Anybody know The Birds? They sung a song back in 1965. Uh, it was a hit song called Turn, Turn, Turn. And in this song, uh, they basically quote a vast portion of this, of this, this, uh, this text. Uh, many of the lyrics quote much of this passage. And the song is intended to give some measure of comfort about life's ebbs and flows, right? If you're in a down season, you'll get to a better season and so forth. And, uh, but they don't really grasp all that Solomon is communicating here. And uh, I had to learn a little bit about them because that was a little before my time. Uh, just to give you reference, my dad was born in 64, and this song came out in 65. And so uh, I had to YouTube it because I heard about it, and I thought, well, that this was popular long before I was born. But Solomon writes what he writes here, not necessarily as a means of comfort, more or less as a reality check. Um, this is a reality check uh, about life. Now, one may find comfort in a bad time knowing that surely there's a better time coming, but ultimately the better times are followed by another bad time. And it's a cycle. 
Uh, it's, it's a world that, that repeats and cycles, just like, like Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. We, we go through a cycle of life and experience some of the same things over and over again. It continues. And as we recall the context of what is happening in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, you understand, he set out to find purpose and meaning, a lasting satisfaction uh, in the things of life under the sun. What's he tested so far? He's tested pleasure. He's tested having possessions. He's tested uh, doing great works. He's tested having great wealth and, and great wisdom, and all of this to no avail. Now, in our last text, of chapter 2, verse 24 through 26, Solomon closed out that section. And what did he exhort the reader to do? He said, enjoy, enjoy the temporary blessings from your labor, for they are the gift of God. We ought to enjoy what God's blessed us with. We ought to enjoy it uh, because life is truly passing before us and what God gifts us was meant to be enjoyed. Now, not in the sinful sense of eat, drink, for tomorrow we die, so let's just do whatever we want but in a godly sense that we understand God's blessings as coming from Him. And with this line of thought, he continues into what these seasons and experiences of life bring us. He does this with the undergirding truth, and I want you to understand this with all this passage. He gives us all this with the undergirding truth that God is sovereign over all seasons and experiences of life. If you miss this, you miss the whole thing. Even the seasons and experiences that are hard to endure and hard to understand. And really, that will be fleshed out more in the next passage, but I wanted to point that out because that's the foundation for all of what we see here. And so I think this is uh, absolutely central to understanding and living life because life has realities about it that we cannot change. We can't change what we're experiencing, but we can understand and find comfort that there is a God who is sovereign and in control over all that we experience. I don't know where I'd be without the sovereignty of God in that matter. It's the, it's the comfort for us. It's the, as Spurgeon said, it is the pillow upon which he lays his head when he's in a trial. So the seasons of life under the sun, number one. Well, there's just one main point. You get three subpoints. all right? Outlines de- are determined by kind of how it goes in the study, so... Sometimes you get more than one, sometimes you don't. But uh, these, three, these three points here I want you to focus on. Life's various experiences are under God's providence. That's the first undergirding principle. Life's various experiences are under God's providence. Now, verse 1 really summarizes what he's about to say. And he says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. That statement itself shows you that there is purpose in what happens. That this world is not random, it's not chance, it's not uh, full of luck, good luck or bad luck. There's not, uh, there's not random circumstance, there is only providence. There's only providence. It sums up all of life under the sun. All that mankind knows and experiences are part of God's ordained order in this world, even the most minute details that we could possibly think of. Every atom has a designated purpose in this world. The world is in a constant motion of varying experiences. Nothing really stays the same. You're not in a perpetual state of happiness and joy. You're not in a perpetual state of sorrow and mourning. You go through different seasons of life, a time for these things. To everything, there is a season. And since life is that way, how could anyone expect to find permanent 
happiness and satisfaction in an ever-changing world. You just can't. You're not going to find it here. Seasons are temporary. They come and they go, just like the seasons of nature, right? Winter comes and it goes. Spring comes and apparently it's already left. (laughs) It's humid and hot. We're entering into Arkansas summer, it feels like, already. But before you know it, we'll get out of summer, we'll be in fall again. Then into winter, then into spring. It's, it's a cycle, right? We enter seasons of life that pass by, and we're not meant to stay in those seasons. I, I kind of think about this in raising children, right? Children are at certain ages and seasons of your life that you're raising them. Spurgeon, right now, he's nearly 16 months old. It's hard to believe he's at that point, right? He's starting to run around like a, a little, uh, little, little something. I don't know. He's, he's crazy. I better be careful how to describe him. It's perfectly fitting for Spurgeon right now for me to put him in the child seat of a shopping cart, right? Not only is it fitting, but it's essential. I couldn't trust him to run around the store. But if Spurgeon were 16 years old, putting him in that seat, that wouldn't be quite right. It'd be unfitting. It'd be out of place. There's a season in life when he's going to fit in that car seat or that small seat. Then there's a season in life he's gone out of that. And ultimately, there's going to be a season of life when he's out of my home entirely. Yeah, this, this is how life is. It, it's, it's cyclical. There's seasons. There's times for these things. There's a time for every matter. I, I think it's important you see that, that he, that's encompassing everything. There's a time for every matter in this world. Everything that happens in this world is really in a fixed state. It has a pre-appointed purpose to it. All that happens, happens when it's supposed to happen. You understand that? God is never late. He's never early. Everything happens when it's supposed to happen. We think, for example, the timing of the Son of God entering into the world, it came at a predetermined time that was unchangeable. It, wouldn't, it could not happen. It would not happen before it. would not happen after it. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Notice that particular phrase, the fullness of the time had come. That is the perfect ordained time of God. It was fixed. It wasn't going to change. He could not have come in 10 B.C. He could not have come in 500 A.D. That specific time is when it was going to happen because that was the perfect time. The same could be said of of all other events that we read in Scripture. Israel was in Egyptian bondage at the appointed time for them to be there. They were delivered at the appointed time for them to be delivered. Uh, All through it, all through the Scriptures, all through history, and even you think down to the even moments of your own life, It is governed by the providence of God. Man cannot change the realities of life or the experiences of life. And the purpose behind such things in life, and this is really the hard part, the purpose behind such things in life to us is unknown. And that's our problem, right? We don't like being in the dark. We don't like not understanding. I'm one that has to wrap my mind around the details of how something works. When it comes to life and all its complexities, that's beyond my capability. You have to resolve to leave that in the hands of God, right? Because He is the God who is in control of all things. God, the infinite, the eternal, sovereign Lord, has declared all that will be from the very beginning. Acts fifteen eighteen says, Known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. God said this through Isaiah in Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. 
Notice that he declares the end from the beginning, not the beginning from the end. He's already got the end mapped out before you ever get there. History is his story, as I've mentioned many times before. So God's purposes have been decreed, and they cannot be changed. They are part of his very character and nature. They flow from his essence. Stephen Charnock rightly said, if God could change his purpose, he would change his nature. And so the point of verse 1 is that the seasons and experiences of life, they are governed and appointed. They are of purpose, and they cannot be altered by man, but are under complete control of the sovereign God. That brings us to letter B. This is really the bulk of the message, just looking at what Solomon says in this poem. Life has various experiences of opposites. What you'll notice is that there's a positive, negative, positive, negative, positive, negative here. There's opposites, essentially, throughout this poem. There's seasons that Solomon mentions to us, and he's using a a poetic device called a merism, which uh, basically means he's not just making a statement about two extremes or opposites, but it also means it's really meant to summarize everything in between it. For example, we use a common biblical merism, heaven and earth. When we say heaven and earth, we don't just mean dirt and sky. We're talking about the encompassing whole of all that is in between, right? So Solomon's language here through this poem, it's meant to give us a complete picture of reality of life under the sun. And so to begin with, we look at verse 2, and what's he say? He says there is a time to be born and a time to die. Now, this opening one really is the bookends to all the, all the rest. Birth, death, and everything else he's about to say, it all fits in between birth and death. Those are bookends. A person is born and a person dies. You think about how wonderful it is when a new person is born. A baby is born. That's a joyous occasion, isn't it? That's one of the most most, uh, uh, joyous occasions we have is when a new baby is born. A new life has been brought into this world that's been fearfully and wonderfully made by the Almighty. Does anyone decide the time of their birth? you decide the time of your birth? Did I decide the time of my birth? No. We don't do that, do we? You see, the very timing of conception and birth is ordained by the sovereign God. I had no say about when I was going to be born. I didn't exist. I didn't have a consciousness. I wasn't there, right? But God did. God set that in motion. You remember God's word to Abraham and his son about his son going to be born, Isaac? Genesis 18, 14, you, you know that when, when they told Abraham and Isaac, they were a little doubtful, right? Uh, especially Sarah, she laughed in her tent, and, 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 and Abraham's kind of questioning too. He's like, what about this? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really upwards in age. How is this possible? So is Sarah. But the word that came to him was, is anything too hard for the Lord? Question mark, number one, that's rhetorical. No, there's not. But notice this, at the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. The key phrase there is the appointed time. God has a fixed time in which he's going to cause Sarah to conceive and Isaac's going to be born into this world. This is true for all of humanity. Life is given and governed by God. We cannot change that. You say, well, what if we plan to get pregnant and then that happens? That was our choice. Well, if that happens, yes, it certainly was your choice, but it was first God's choice. (laughs) You understand that God, God sovereignly governs over the free agency of people and their decisions. 
Now, you may not plan to conceive and yet conceive. Guess what? That was God's plan. That was God's timing. Now, what about the opposite end of the spectrum? What about death? You got birth. You don't have any control over birth. What about death? Is there any way you can bypass death? Nope. You have no control over doing that. God said to the Hebrews, very fundamental principle to all of us, he says, just as it is appointed, appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. We know why death entered into the world. Remember, Solomon's viewing is in view of a sin-cursed earth where death has reigned over mankind, and the curse of sin is upon the earth and humanity, right? Death is inescapable because of sin. And since we cannot escape death, could we determine when our death will be or the manner in which we will die? We don't have a clue when we're going to die. Ultimately, the answer is no. Job said it this way, Job 14.5, Since his days are determined, talking about man, and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Ultimately, God has already fixed my death date. I don't know when that is. Could be tomorrow, could be tonight, could be 50 years from now, could be 80 years from now. I don't know. Same applies for all of us. I have no control over that. This is a fixed reality of life. Our days are appointed, just like our birth was appointed. David said this when when he was threatened by his enemies. He said, my times are in your hand, Lord. Psalm 31, 15. My times are in your hand. They're not in mine. They're in your hand. My my times are in his hand. And, And as Charles Bridges rightly said this in his commentary, he said, if thy times are in his hand, in what better hand could they be? Friend, you understand as a Christian, there is no better place than to understand that all of your life is in the sovereign hand of God, under his providence. You see what Solomon said, these bookends of life cannot be changed by us. They always happen as God appoints them. There's a purpose and a time for them. Next, Solomon says in verse 2, he says there's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Anybody done any planting lately or not long ago? Planting naturally takes our minds to food, right? Gardening, farming, that sort of thing. We plant certain foods at certain times to allow them to grow. And once they grow, there comes a time of harvest, a time to pluck up that which is planted. Hopefully, you've got some good grown food and you can eat, right? That's the point of it. It could also be that you've planted, what you've planted did not grow as you wished. Maybe a frost came through. Maybe there was no rain. Maybe at the end you really just have to root them out and you really didn't get much of a harvest. You might even think of this in terms of building or setting in order certain things and then redoing it later. Nothing really stays permanently fixed, right? We recently decided to swap two rooms in our house of how they were set up. Any of you ever got the bright idea to rearrange furniture or swap rooms about 10 o'clock at night? It happens, especially when your wife is really motivated to get it done. That's when you jump in and get busy, right? We originally planted things in a certain room, but now we're going to unplant them, pluck them up, and rearrange it all. That's a cycle of life. Nothing stays permanent. This, and this often can be frustrating to our human thinking, human life. You notice next in verse 3. Solomon says there's a time to kill and a time to heal. Now, pause for a moment and understand that he's not advocating or condoning murder. 
Scripture is plain on that point. He says, you shall not murder. Exodus 20, verse 13. That's one of the Ten Commandments. But there's two things that could be in view here. And I think both of them are applicable. One, there is the killing and healing of animals, as in the, especially in the day and age in which Solomon lived, a shepherd may have an ill animal and try to nurse it or heal it back to health. That same shepherd may strike that animal with a knife by way of sacrifice or for food. There's a time to heal. There's a time to kill and taking its life. Then there's also the aspect when it comes to people. There is a time when people need healing. And then there's also a time when taking the life from people is necessary. Now, we always want healing, especially in sickness. I'm not advertising for killing in that form. But understand that there are times when people may be put to death under God's certain providences. Self-defense, time of war, capital punishment. Those are times that are biblically warranted for killing. Genesis 6, 9, God told Noah, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. There's your, there's your proof text for capital punishment. That is a biblical thing. So what Solomon says here is not licensed to murder, but is a statement of the reality of life. Sometimes healing happens, sometimes killing happens. And this is all the prerogative of whose providence? God's. Because he's the true giver and taker of life. Deuteronomy 32, 39, he said to his people, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. What do you find there? This is God's providential prerogative. And I think you see this not only in God's declaration, but in the hearts of his people, Hannah. Hannah, we know her story, how she struggled to get pregnant. She prayed and was burdened, and then God heard her prayer, and she conceived. And she understood that all things were under his providence. And part of her wonderful prayer of praise to him, in 1 Samuel 2, 6, she says this very same thing that is said in Deuteronomy. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. This is a reality of life that man cannot change. You notice in verse 3, verse 3 again, the latter part, Solomon says there is a time to break down and a time to build up. Now, this could be applied pretty broadly to several things buildings or political schemes or what have you. But think of how someone may pour their sweat and blood into a house to be used by them and may the others buy them. They, they construct it and they work hard to build it and get it right. But ultimately, they're going to pass away. Their ch- kids are going to pass away. Their grandchildren children pass away. Ultimately, eventually, every building that's built either needs to be remodeled or tore down and rebuilt. There's a time when you're building time when something needs to be tore down you look through you you drive by certain buildings and some buildings are just pretty much too far gone they need to be taken down right now Solomon knew what it was to build up right he had built up the kingdom of Israel with all of its extravagant buildings and splendor and the, the glory of the temple let's read and just look for a moment at this very principle in the life of Solomon second king or excuse me first kings first kings 14 15 through 19 Notice this with me. 1 Kings 14, begin there in verse 15. Notice it says, moreover, well, I think I've got the wrong place. I did have the wrong place. That's what happens when your brain is getting turned into mush. You know that Solomon built the house of the Lord and all the people, all the regions around Israel. Go with me to 2 Kings 25. Let's look at the end of that. 
Let's look at the end of that. 2 Kings 25. I know this reference is correct. I thought it was 1 Kings 14. Maybe it, it must be a different chapter. 2 Kings 25, 8 through 10. What happens after, after all that Solomon built, all the glory of Israel in his day? We know how glorious it was, right? People coming from all over just to hear the wisdom of Solomon and see all that he had done. But then there came a time when judgment came on Israel and Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon came. And we read in verse 8 of 2 Kings 25, In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Now you just imagine for a moment, all the glory of Israel and all those buildings, the temple, and all that Solomon had worked to build, and now after Solomon's gone, down a little ways in the reigns of the kings, what's happened? All of it is just plucked down. It's all just destroyed. Do we not see that even in kingdoms throughout history? Rome. Rome was another one that uh, was great and glorious in its day. Where is Rome today? It's in rubble. Find some, you have some archaeological places and some things that remain, but it's, it's not a functioning empire anymore in uh, the world, right? You can think of things in your life that you've built that are eventually have been tore down. My cousin and I, we used to have a, um, there's an apple tree at my grandmother's house. We loved that apple tree. We would climb and play in it all the time. It was like our playground, right? And, and so one day we asked one of our uncles, I don't know who it, did, who, who it was that did it, to cut out some pieces of wood so that we could put them up in there. So we built our own little tree house in that, in that apple tree, played in that thing and, and drove nails through it and all sorts of things. Well, a little bit over time, you go back and look at that thing, it's gone. And now the tree is gone. And so it's like this cycle of life. We, we were there not long ago, I guess, one of our times we were there, we said, look over there. Remember what used to be there? What was there? It was the apple tree that used to be there. We spent so many days and hours playing in that tree and in the treehouse that we had, we had put together. You see, this is the cycle of life under the sun. There's, there's a point of things that just can't change. Verse 4, notice that he mentions another two opposite things here. They're very similar in nature. He says there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. Now, we're all familiar with these two seasons. Who has never had a time of sorrow and weeping? We've all had a time of sorrow and weeping. Job said this, Job 14.1, A man who's born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. We all go through times and seasons of sorrow and weeping. But then there's also seasons of joy and laughter. Did you know that each of these seasons is under the providential hand of God? Every one of them. Remember the Israelites who were taken captive. Do you think in their captivity that that was a time of weeping or laughter? Imagine being carried off from your home, seeing your home destroyed and burned with fire and carried off into a distant land to be a slave to another nation. That's a time of weeping. What do we find after that? God brought them back. Psalm 126, 1 through 2, he says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. 
Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord restored their laughter, their joy. You see, the Lord was governing both of those events. Both of those seasons in Israel's history was under the governing providence of God. David experienced this in his life. Psalm 30, verse 11 through 12. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. David's recalling this. You've turned my mourning into dancing, my, this into joy and laughter. We've all experienced this in our life. Weeping and laughter come and go. And so does the next thing he mentions, which is very similar, a time to mourn and a time to dance. They're similar, but they may have some more specific intention. A time of mourning is always associated with what? Death and funerals and passing of loved ones. We experience that. Dancing, especially biblically, was referenced to celebrations. Think of weddings or even David celebrating when they were bringing the ark <coughs> to, to the city. <coughs> Excuse me. Both of these occasions of life happen. Both of them are under God's providence. Verse number 5, notice what he says, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. I don't know about you, but I don't do a whole lot of that. Do you? Maybe in certain contexts. They had a specific context. The natural reference would be to casting away stones when they were useless or perhaps a hindrance to the soil, gathering them when they were used for some profitable purpose. We see some illustration of this in Scripture, Isaiah 5, 2. He dug it, talking about the one who's building a vineyard. He dug it and cleared it of stones, planted it with the choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. That's one instance. Now, we don't normally do that much in modern culture, unless maybe you're gardening. You need to clear out some stones, but we can certainly see some applications. I remember when I was a teenager, our parents built a house when we moved back to Kentucky from Indiana. And in construction, you're building a house, one of the last things you do is you sow the seed of your yard, right? Because it's usually just a bunch of dirt. But it's not just a bunch of dirt, it's also a bunch of rocks from all the construction. And so as a teenager, my, myself and my sister, we got the exciting task of going out and putting all those rocks into five-gallon buckets. I'm telling you, that's miserable. That's worse than getting a spanking in my mind. I mean, I hated that. The hot of summer, and you're out there picking up rocks, sticking them in a bucket. It seemed like it's never going to end. But those rocks, we either dumped them in the landscape, used them for something, or we got rid of them, tossed them in some other, some other place. There's a negative and positive aspect of this. Another aspect in ancient Israel, in that ancient time, was that sometimes rocks were gathered and thrown into the enemy's field to make them unworkable. We see an instance of that in 2 Kings 3.25. They overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and fell all the good trees till, it was on, till only its stones were left in Kurhasheth, and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. So that was, a, that was a military use of it. But the main point is that they used rocks for many purposes, from houses to fences, water wells, weapons, altars, memorials, all of these sorts of things. Sometimes they needed to gather them, sometimes they needed to cast them away. That principle never changed. still happens in different ways today, just with different materials. Solomon says in verse 5 again, verse B, verse 5 and B, there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. What's he mean here? 
this seems more to be an emotional connection or uh, fellowship with some. There's times when you need to embrace someone. There's times when you need to maybe sever that friendship or fellowship. I had a friend that I was very close to, and, but I had to sever that friendship. Why? Because he was a pathological liar, and he wouldn't stop. So the best thing for me to do was to stop. I had to disconnect. Then there's times I've had friends who needed comfort and encouragement. You embrace them, you comfort them, you help them. Both of those are aspects and part of life. They can be hurtful, they can be helpful. In verse 6, you notice, he says there's a time to seek and a time to lose. Have you ever lost something? You ever tried to seek and find it? What happens when you lose something? You go looking for it. There's a time for seeking and forgetting. There's a time here to lose. That means you, what, what it means here by lose, you means you let go for seeking it. You ever lost something you just couldn't find it? You're like, okay, I'm done. Well, if you, you've had kids, you know what that's like. When one kid comes to us and says, well, I can't find this toy or object, I usually tell them it's somewhere in this house. It didn't leave. But kids are good at losing things and you still not be able to find them in your own house. I don't know how that works, but that's how it goes. But then sometimes they turn up after a long period of time when you called off the search a long time ago. What Solomon is saying is that sometimes there's a, there's a time to pursue, sometimes there's a time not to pursue, you drop it. That's part of life, right? Notice he says next, a time to keep and a time to cast away. I think this is the biblical verse proof for yard sales. Time to keep, time to cast away, right? Keep things, there's a time to get rid of things. That's part of the process of life. Sometimes it happens willfully, sometimes it happens beyond your will. Against your natural desires. You recall the Hebrew Christians in Hebrews 10.34 who had their things taken from them, not because they were giving them up, because of persecution. He said to them, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. So there, there was a time to let go of things, and there was a time to keep things. Keeping and giving away are part of life. That's what Solomon is saying here. Verse 7, he says there's a time to tear and a time to sow. This has reference to tearing a garment and sewing a garment. We see this in biblical times when a person would, would tear their garment in grief or sorrow. When Jacob got news about Joseph and, and that he was dead, according to his brothers, killed by an animal, the Bible says Jacob tore his garment, he put sackcloth his loins, and mourned for his son many days. Then there's time to sew. You sew when you're making a new garment. You sew when you're fixing a garment. So there's a time for that. Solomon next says that sex, there's, a, there's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. How greatly this is seen today. Many people speak when they ought not to and don't speak when they need to. Job's friends are a good example of speaking when they shouldn't have spoke. They really gave him a lot of help. He said, you all are miserable doctors. You guys are miserable help to me. Then there's a time when speaking's needed. How many of us have had someone tell us something just at the right time, and it was the help you needed in the form of words? There's a time to speak, a time that you need something. This practice, it takes wisdom to know when to speak and what to speak. Proverbs 25, 11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. It's a beautiful picture. And lastly, verse 8, we come to this last verse. Solomon says here, there's a time to love and a time to hate. And we know the biblical principle of God's people is to what? It's to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to love your enemies. 
But there's also a godly hatred in which we must hate our sin and sin in general. David said, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Psalm 119, 163. We look at the character and nature of the Lord. The Lord possesses a holy hatred and a holy love. But more broadly in life, under the sun, understand that Solomon's viewpoint here, here is saying this, both love and hate, they are elements of life that we see in this world. You may not be able to control the love or hate of someone else, but they might, you might experience hate from someone else. And that hate may hurt you. That may bring harm to you emotionally or physically. Then you may experience love also. Finally, Solomon says in verse 8, there's a time for war and a time for peace. Now, we certainly don't desire war, but sometimes war can't be avoided. Sometimes war is necessary. War is a hard thing to comprehend, right? When you consider the, the mass casualties and suffering that war brings. But sometimes war is a means of God's chastisement. It also may be, may be a means of bringing about peace. David wrote it this way, Psalm 144.1. He was one who experienced much of it. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. So you understand that God uses times of war and times of peace for his purposes. Both are under his providence. And as you look at all of these things that Solomon mentions, what can man do to change them? Nothing. He can do nothing to change these things. And so that brings me to this last point here, letter C. Life's various experiences are a mystery to us. They're mysterious to us. We don't understand them fully. Now, this will be more fleshed out in the next text. But just in summary, as we look at all the seasons of life and the times of life, the experiences of life under the sun, these things frustrate mankind. Because when you get to thinking through them, they are complex. They're hard to understand. They generate uncertainty in the hearts of men and our minds. They are mysterious to our thoughts. And why is that? Because we can't see the picture of why they are there. We can't see the bigger picture of why God does certain things and allows certain things. Why'd this happen? That frustrates us. That's mysterious to us. You know, often like children, they're, all, they're, they're good at asking the, the question that you wish they wouldn't ask all the time. Why? Why? Mom and Dad says, you need to eat your vegetables. Why? Why can't I not eat my vegetables? Why do I got to eat this food? Why can't I play in the road? Why can't I jump off the swing when it's at the very highest level it is and come out on the ground? Because you're going to break your ankle and we're going to take you to the hospital. That's why. Parents see a bigger picture that children don't see. So their constant question is, why, 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 why? But even us as adults, we get into life and we have the same question to God often. And we see some of the things we don't understand. We ask, why? Why? See, this ultimately is what the next passage will teach us to some degree. But the bottom line in all of this is that God is the one who's in control over all creation and all events of creation. And because he's sovereign, because he's sovereign, he's working, he's working everything, not just some things, but everything to an ultimate purpose of good and his glory. And ultimately, it boils down to this. 
when it comes to us and us not understanding all the seasons of life and why we're experiencing what we're experiencing, all that we do not understand is to be trusted into his hand. This ultimately comes down to turning to the one true God and having faith in that one true God. God told Moses and the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. You know what that reveals to me? There's a lot of things that I'm not going to understand. They're hidden from my understanding. And we have to resolve the fact that I don't have to understand everything. But I am called and commanded to trust the God who is in control over everything. And as God's people, you and I can rest assured in his purposes. As Charles Bridges said this, all the wheels of providence subserve the purposes of grace. And that's a wonderful comfort for all of us. Everything of what we see in the life cycle must be trusted into the hands of our sovereign God. Life's seasons, life's experiences, they're not going to change. There is a time for everything, and they're not going to change. They're, they're going to be the experiences that man, man goes through. But we've got a great God to trust with them. And he must, trust, must be trusted, and we must fear him as we ought to fear him. So that will conclude our time tonight in the study of the Scriptures. And I pray this text has maybe encouraged us and brought our attention to life itself and the providence of God, and it will continue to the next passage because it does flow together. It will flow together, but uh, ultimately we see just a summary of what happens in life and, and uh, how God is over, over all those things.